The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is, in fact, Real Life Real Estate Investing, your public radio source for the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And today on Real Life Real Estate, we have one of those real-life investors that we love to get here on Real Life Real Estate who has just gotten like really super good at something and has agreed to get on the air and share and even answer your questions at 877-772-9658 or through our website. If you go to realliferealestate.com, you can see the Ask a Question button. Kristen Callendine grew up in one of those families where they said, get a job, work at it 50 years, get a gold watch and the company will take care of you happily ever after. And decided after she graduated from college that maybe she didn't want to depend on other folks and their... um, goodwill and generosity to (laughs) to keep her in the way in which she would like to become accustomed so she started in the real estate business um back around back right around the time the market crashed congratulations right good 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 job with that and uh had a had a little bit of a painful experience doing some rehabs but then sort of found her niche with short sales so Since she started negotiating short sales, she has successfully helped over 900 sellers avoid foreclosure and negotiate away $25 million in deficiencies. So she's from right here in the greater Cincinnati area, but is becoming internationally known as a short sale expert with a recent uh, speaking engagement in Quebec, Canada. And she is here today to share with us some of the challenges and rewards of negotiating short sales in the current market. Welcome, Kristen. Thanks, Vina. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And it is it is good to have you. Um, the the short sale market has changed so much in the last ten years. <laughs> it is unrecognizable. <laughs> like I, I listened to interviews that I did back in. 2005 and 2006 with people on short sales and they were like no all you have to do is just call up the bank and be nice and send them some cookies and the the short sale the short sale guy will just like write off half the amount of the loan and you know absolutely no problem and 
Now it's a lot different. There's a lot of rules and regulations that weren't around 10 years ago. Amen, sister. That's that's the truth. Yeah, and I was actually when I was when I was writing the email to send out to folks to let, let them know you're going to be on the air. I said basically, if you have a course that's more than about five years old about how to do short sales, <laughs> you might as well throw it away <laughs> because yep. because everything is just so um, much more complex. I mean, it's really it's really gone from being a business that just any old Joe can kind of stumble their way into to one that you really have to treat as a profession. Yes, yes, that's that's the truth. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about some of the realities of of short sales in the market today, because um, I think there's still a lot of misinformation floating around that is basically just because it's not the way it was. I mean, it, some of the stuff was true years ago and is not true now. I can't hear myself now, Mike. What did you do? Um, you can hear me? Okay. Because all right. Because I like I can't hear myself in my own microphones, and you know how I like to hear myself talk. Jiggle the headphone. Jiggle the headphone. See, see, that's why we have fun drives is so we can have headphones that we don't have to jiggle. Technical <laughs> difficulties. <laughs> yes, live radio. Yay. <laughs> um, okay, so so let let's let's do a rundown of what somebody can expect, and 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 we're going to look at it. I know you you largely work with the sellers. You largely work with the folks who you know are, are in the bad situation and need help getting out. Mm-hmm. Our listeners, of course, are primarily folks who are on the other side of that. They want to buy the property. So let's kind of look at it from from their perspective and start with, can you any longer, just as an individual human being, call up a bank and institute a short sale when you are the buyer and somebody else is the seller? Uh, That's a big no. (laughs) That's the end of that. No, um, and that is exactly how it used to to work back in the heyday. um, anybody could do them. Everybody was doing them. Um, and, and today, um, with all their guidelines and regulations that have come down, uh, you can basically be an attorney or you can be a uh, licensed real estate agent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that certainly doesn't mean that an investor can't make an offer on a, on a property. It just means that if you are the first point of contact... You know, the seller calls you. That happens. That happens an awful lot. A lot of yes. our sellers, you know, we don't actually even pursue foreclosures. But you know, a seller will call, and one of the questions is always, "Are you current on your payments?" And they say, mm, "Not really." Right. And and they haven't talked to an agent, and they haven't talked to an attorney. I'm literally the first point of contact. All all it means is that I have to have an agent slash attorney slash negotiator on my side to whom I can then you know turn that person over so that they can. I'm still making the offer, but somebody else is kind of doing the process anymore, right? Yes, and that's that's probably 25 to 30 percent of my business is dealing with the investors who who bring me the uh, the seller and and say I want to buy their house, but they're upside down. Uh, can you help me? Mm-hmm. Need need a short sale. So so what what do you think all of this is? Because I remember like back in the day. Everybody who everybody who was selling a course on short sales would would outline this list of reasons why the bank is going to take pennies on the dollar for their short sale and why they made it so easy for you to do it. And now, I mean, seriously, it seems like it seems like they're bending over backwards to make it difficult <laughs> for for normal human beings to do short sales. Do you have any feel as to why that might be? What are they What are they trying to accomplish here? Um. That's because they have Big Brother in their back pocket. 
um, with the uh, <clears throat> with the eight trillion dollar mortgage bailout that occurred a few years ago. Um, the banks now have have a lot different guidelines. The banks, the mortgage insurers, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, they have a whole set of guidelines that they have to go through to to be able to allow the seller to sell for less than what's owed. Mm-hmm. It would seem. I mean, there was all that talk when the <laughs> when the market crashed. There was all that talk about how the government was going to help people who were upside down by by making it easier for them to do a, a whole bunch of stuff loan modifications yep. which as far as i can tell haven't got a whole lot haven't gotten a whole lot easier either uh they were going to help them do short sales by having i remember there was a, some talk one time about there was um two weeks the bank only had two weeks to respond to a short sale <laughs> offer i mean did that ever actually happen i've never i've never still never had a two week response time um, the shortest short sale I ever did literally was seven days. Um, I can tell you this. It was because the bank already knew they didn't want the house. And <laughs> and it was one of those, you sent in the paperwork, they appraised it the next day, they came back the next day with the value, and, it was, and they gave us three days to close. <laughs> nice. I can imagine what that house must have been like. <laughs> All right, so so things are different, but we're not trying to make listeners say, "Oh well, then I shouldn't do short sales because no, there, there's no. still a lot of potential here." Well, and it's and it's it's really the hidden market. I mean, um, um, I've gotten some statistics af- between December and January that uh, 2017 is is the year for the seven year arm adjustments. And I think I saw where almost 63% were upside down mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the adjustments. Mm-hmm. So lots of potential to both help people out of a tough situation and also profit from it, because that's how we make profit is by helping people. Yep. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk more about the the realities of how all of this works and who you listeners are going to need on your team and what you're going to need to know if you want to go out and pursue some short sales. In the meantime, if you have questions, our number here in the studio is 877-772-9658. Or if you are uh, looking to send an email and not let your boss know that you're listening to the radio while you're at work, that would be by going to realliferealestate.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. My guest today is Kristen Callendine from ExitMyForeclosure.com, who has many years of experience in short sales and is stuck with it, unlike a lot of folks who kind of, they kind of got out of the short sale business at the point at which the banks decided that licensed agents must be involved in the transaction unless there's an attorney involved in the transaction. And, you know, there's, there's, I guess good business reasons for, you know, some of this stuff that the banks are doing. But as Kristen mentioned before the break, a lot of it is just you take money from the government and then you have to follow their rules. That's how it works. Yep. So we're talking about the realities of um, investing in properties that are going to start out as pre-foreclosures. Uh, we're also taking your calls at 877-772-9658, or you can send us an email by going to our website at realliferealestate.com. We're going to go ahead and go to the phones and talk to Steve, who's calling on line one from Cincinnati. Steve, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hello there all. How are you this evening? 
just great. How are you, Steve? I'm fine. Um, don't know a whole lot about real estate. I'm very fortunate I own my house. But can you, in a, I don't know if it can be nutshelled, but what you were speaking of is, oh, yeah, you know, now the banks have rules and stuff like that for, you know, getting uh, house loans and things like that. Weren't there rules before? <laughs> and what happened in the giant crash? All I have ever heard, because I had a couple of friends that, were recruited to uh, basically get loans for people for homes because there were so many people that were now buying homes that before couldn't afford to buy a home. Yeah. And actually, I guess as it turned out, they shouldn't still have been allowed to <laughs> still, buy still a home. Still couldn't afford to buy a home, yes, that's, that's true. Yeah, they weren't allowed. They shouldn't have been allowed to buy a home. And, and then did that contribute to these houses going down the tubes, which then contributed to all this short sale talk? Yeah, and Steve, Steve, you just asked a question that will seriously continue to be debated into the next century, just, just like they're yes. still debating what, happ- what happened dur- that caused the Great Depression. The, the, the question you just asked is going to be a matter of debate forever and ever and ever. And there's you know, finger pointing in every direction, and I can just I can just tell you from my perspective as as somebody who was buying houses during that time, selling houses during that time. I was not in the mortgage business like like your friends were, but I saw what was happening in the mortgage business. That it was greed all around. There is blame to be laid everywhere. The you know everyone wants to blame Wall Street because they had that um, just un un ending hunger for those subprime loans they wanted to buy them up because they could split them up and then sell them to people who didn't quite understand what it was they were buying and yeah there was some greed there there was also some greed on the part of those homeowners who were buying properties that any 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 person who knew enough to read the form should have known that they could not afford that loan the 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 games that were being played with the loans with the teaser rates and hey you don't have you don't have to pay your full payment it's an option arm mm-hmm. you you can pay mm-hmm. part of your payment for the first 10 years and then whatever you don't pay we'll just add it to the loan and it'll become a 40 year loan there was a point at which folks were able to buy a house costing 9 times their annual income three mm-hmm. times as normal. Like if you make if you make sixty thousand dollars a year in theory, you can afford a hundred eighty thousand dollar house. There were people buying five hundred and forty thousand dollar houses who made sixty thousand dollars a year. Did that did that contribute to the 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 crash and all these short sales? Oh heck yes, it did. But come on, the consumer who was using his bank using his house as an ATM and refinancing every year and taking cash out has to take some of the blame for that. The mortgage brokers have to take some of the blame for that because they knew that there, there was some fraud going on, some flat out, we're going to tell the bank you're making money that you're not even making. But like you said, it was it was like go-go times, right? Because everybody I can cram through the system, I can make four or $5,000 making this mortgage loan because Wall Street's so anxious to sell it that they'll pay me to make it. So, yeah. Yeah, because I, I had two points of your of your uh, selling and buying that I experienced through friends is one was don't worry about how expensive your house that you're buying because you're going to be the buyer of this house whether you pay full monthly things don't worry about it 
because this three hundred thousand house, three hundred thousand dollar house you buy in a year and a half, you're going to sell it for four hundred and fifty. Right. So just don't even worry about right, it. Right, because the market will never go down. Thing. Yeah, it'll yeah. always go up. It'll never go down. <laughs> and then I actually had a very close person to me experience when their parents passed away. These people came to buy the house because, you know, they did not need it because they had their own home and the other person had their own home, so they were just going to sell the house. Well, they're selling the house and just for easy numbers, say the house was worth $100,000. These people couldn't afford a cardboard box. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to buy this. Imagine that. There was a car in the garage, an old car in the garage. So when the push came to shove and they were going to buy this house because they didn't have to basically have any money down, they said, hey, you know, we're going to get a $100,000 loan for this house. Just make it a $110,000 loan and throw in the car. <laughs> Within, Glory. what was it that they said? I think eight months. <clears throat> Or a year at the most, they were out of the house because they couldn't afford anything. Right. What could right. go wrong with that arrangement? I mean, seriously, uh, yeah. It's it's it. Yes, Steve. The reason that Kristen is in business <laughs> is because there were a lot of there were a lot of dumb loans made, and there were a lot of loans made to people that, uh, under any real risk evaluation, couldn't pay for them. And, if you're buying, if you're getting a loan. The person that's giving you the loan, which I'm assuming is a bank, don't they normally ask for, okay, can't you afford this? Yeah, well, but the thing is... You have to remember the time. Yeah. When when uh, pre, pre-market crash, uh, we kind of have a tongue-in-cheek saying you can fog a mirror and get a loan, and literally there was a lot of that going on. Um, really? Stated in what they called a CISA loan, stated income, stated asset loan, no verification. You could walk into any any uh, mortgage loan uh, company and say, I'd like to buy a house. And they say, okay, I'll fill out the paperwork for you. Sign here. Press hard three copies. I mean, but it, how it, did that change from what it was before, which obviously was working and kept everything? There, before that, there were qualifications. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. Before that, there were qualifications, and now after that, there there are qualifications. Yeah, Steve, we have to. We actually have to. We have to actually wrap this up for a break. But let me. Let oh me, no, no problem. Let me. Let me. Let me tell you. It. It has historically been true, and you can look at these cycles going back to the 1880s. That. Um, Real estate goes up in value, land goes up in value, and banks get very, very anxious to make loans on that land because it, you know, it's a good security for the loan. And then prices, there's overbuilding, prices start to drop. And as a result, there's a lot of foreclosures because folks just stop paying. You know, why would I pay a $300,000 loan on a $200,000 house? And then the bank's deeply contract what they're willing to do and they never quite they never quite seem to get it exactly right they're either being too generous or too strict and we're Mm -hmm. coming out of the period now 
where the banks were just being too strict. Like I was hearing stories with about people with 740 credit scores unable to get a loan with 20% down because of some minor little thing. And that's a, that's a good loan. I'll make that loan every day of the week, especially when the government will loan me money at zero and I can, I can loan it to them at four. We're coming out of that period of time, which means we'll be in kind of a balanced period here for a few years. And then you mark my words, you will see those crazy loans again. Yep. Uh, so thank you for your call, Steve. Appreciate it. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, uh, talking today to Kristen Callendine. I swear about short sales. <laughs> Even though we just... This is the easiest interview I've ever done. <laughs> I know. We just did like a... We just did like a... Um, history of, of, of short sales. Um, can we go ahead and go to line two and talk to Ben in Cincinnati? Ben, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hey guys, Ben Bauer here. How are you? Good, Ben. How are hey, you? Ben. Not bad. I want to go back to something Vina said earlier, and that was the kind of the criteria for who can actually call the bank. And my question is, you know, back in the day, of course, anybody could do it, but what types of properties fall within the anybody can do it still? So is it just Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac type properties, and it's a it's a regulatory type issue? So, for example, a local bank that holds its own paper and doesn't care whether their paper uh, is conforming to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac standards, is that something that just anybody could approach the bank for? Is it non-owner-occupied, or is it truly just commercial deals uh, where it comes down to things that just anybody can do on a short term? Thanks, Ben. A real question. <laughs> um, actually, the you, you're you've you've kind of hit the nail on the head. If it's if it's an insured loan, Fannie, Freddie, FHA, um, uh, those are the guidelines that that have come down through the times and said, okay, we need we need an agent involved. We need this. We need that. We need a you know to kill two or three trees with paperwork. Um, portfolio lenders. Depending on who they are, um, you can approach them. You can approach them directly, obviously, with the seller's seller's uh, authorization. But um, they're less uh, strict on their guidelines. So it's not necessarily a regulatory thing from uh, the aspect of this is the law and everybody needs to follow it. It's, it's we let you guys all this money also not. Like you took bailout bail money. Out. Yeah, you took bailout and money. Thus, you must do these things. Be. Right, right. <laughs> and and also, it's it's uh, about ninety five or ninety eight percent of all loans generated are government backed loans. That was going to be my next question. There can't be many of those um, outside the box. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them are still the investor loans, um, and and I do do short sales for investors, you know, on that side of it. Um, and, and those seem to be portfolio loans. Yeah, portfolio loans. And then the other, the other time you run, across, uh, you run across stuff where, well, the two of you can do it any time, but somebody like me who <laughs> doesn't, you know, not a lawyer, uh, can do it is um, if, the, if, the prop, if the loan, if the defaulted loan has already been sold mm-hmm. to typically a, a note buyer who is not you know it's no longer it's no longer a regulated loan it's you know it's sold to joe's defaulted loan llc in a big package and trust me joe's defaulted loans llc will talk to you all day long because yep. their whole their yes, whole game is is either get it you know get it reperforming or get it sold they love talking about short sales so but you know as kristen said that's a tiny part of the market 
It seems like everybody who I talk to is ends up being being Fannie Mae or or, or FHA. Right. Exactly as I figured. So one closing comment: as a loan closer back in two thousand four, oh five, oh six, and Kristen, you said uh, exactly the right words. Fog the mirror was the requirement. <laughs> I closed literally thousands of those loans. We had what was called option arms, and you could pick your payment, yep. including a, what was called negative amortization payment, which means your balance goes up yes. as you make that not even minimum payment amount. Which so, interestingly, uh, Ben, let's let, and, and let's 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 not just let that lay there and let people let people go. Oh my God, that's such a terrible idea. That that is actually potentially a really good financial planning tool, but only for a sophisticated high income person. Yes, who's who knows that they they know their income is going to go up year over year, and they know they've bought the property at a deep discount, and the value is going to go up year after year. It could make sense for somebody like that, where they made the mistake. Was offering them to everybody. Offering them to people who didn't understand that if my income doesn't go up 10% next year, I can't afford my loan next year. Yes. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And the ones that were problems for me were ones where people said, what's my minimum payment again? Yeah. It's only $200? Well, yeah, but your interest only would be $350. That means your balance goes up $130 every month. Uh-huh. Yes. But my minimum pay, I only have to pay $220. And, you know, it's just unsophisticated borrowers. Uh-huh. But to your point, they absolutely have, it's like a, any other tool, right? You can bang your thumb with a hammer, but that doesn't mean the hammer is bad. It's just you got to use it for the right purpose. <laughs> well, and, and just like the CISA loans, you know, the stated income, stated asset that I talked about, I, those are, are really good loans for investors because if it's a savvy investor, they don't make any money. You know, it's a double-edged sword. I could pay taxes, or or I could. Yeah, let's let, 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 let's let's clarify that they don't show income on their tax return, and not because they're cheating, correct? <laughs> but because they've got so much depreciation, correct? And so many write-offs. It's right. it's, it's it's legally not not having any income, not like fake, not having any income. But they have a million dollars worth of, of exactly. real estate in their portfolio. Exactly. Yeah, a, a, a lot of this a lot of this stuff. Um, would have been okay had it not been for the fact that it, it became like beanie babies or tulip bulbs, right? Everybody wants a piece right. of of the real estate game and of the mortgage-backed securities game. And a bunch of people jumped in who didn't really understand it. And they just, you know, bidding it up, bidding it up, bidding it up, bidding it up. And that's where the problem came. It was in American greed across the board. Right. Guys, I appreciate it. I'm doing the show. I will let you go and uh, continue to listen. Take care. All right. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you so much for your Bye. call, Ben. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're going to take a quick break. If you have questions or apparently comments about short sales, uh, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send us an email. Just go to our website at realliferealestate.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing talking uh, short sales today with Kristen Kalendine from Exit My Fork. <laughs> Exit. I don't know why that's so hard for me. ExitMyForeclosure.com. And uh, Kristen has been doing this for a lot of time, and she's actually starting to go out and speak to some associations and whatnot about um, her experiences with short sales and uh, how one goes about doing them. She's speaking at Cincinnati REA um, a week from tomorrow mm-hmm. at uh, the main meeting. And we're really looking forward to that because that's one of those that's one of those topics that people just show up for. They want to know they want to know about short sales, and rightly so. 
Um, speaking of Columbus, I think in April. Okay. And <laughs> just found that out. <laughs> and uh, if you're interested in having her come speak to your group, you can get a hold of her at exitmyforeclosures.com. So um, going back to sort of what we had set out to do today, which is sort of what, what do investors need to know if they're going to approach short sales? You have referenced the fact that there's a there's actually a lot of fingers in the pie from the perspective of the it's not the bank. It's not you're never working with just the bank. There's not some dude at Bank of America sitting there checking yes or no. There's there's actually a whole bunch of different potential um, stakeholders yes. that are that are helping to make the decision. And then on top of that, there's 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 other things. Um, other things you need to look at probably before you even decide whether to pursue a short sale. So give us some examples of of the stakeholders and how they help make decisions and then other stuff that we need to be aware of. Okay. Well, uh, doing a short sale, exactly like you said, is is never, never talking to a single bank. Um, <clears throat> they're, like I told Ben... Um, Probably 95 to 98% of all of the uh, short sales that I deal with are insured loans. So that's Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, VA, USDA. Um, there's also non-government back insured loans, HAFAs. Um, so so you're, when you're doing a short sale, you, you may do the process with the lender, but ultimately, it's the insurer or the servicer that's actually going to give the approval, yes or no, and, and give a value back the, what they're going to allow the house to be sold for. And the reason being, they're the insurer. Uh, they're basically writing a check back to that lender for the, for the losses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, particularly, I think, with, with Fannie Mae properties, when you, if, if, you ever, if you ever geek out and start looking at, like, who actually owns the loan? Yes, <laughs> which I've done from time to time. <laughs> you know, because the seller will say, "Oh, my loan's with Bank of America," and I'll be like, "Hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if it really is, or if Bank of America is just servicing the loan. They're just be- being paid to collect it from you." Yep. And I go and I look in the public records, and it turns out that the real owner is the Fannie Mae Asset Backed Trust Number Three Seven Six Eight, Wells Fargo trustee. And Wells Fargo's not even the servicer anymore. It's it's Bank of America, and when you think about um, how how many uh, folks are, are are affected on that side of it, because that that what it means that something's owned by an asset backed trust mm-hmm. is that a bunch of loans have been pooled together, yes, and sold. Like I might own some shares, you might own some shares, Mike might own some shares. Although doubtful because he works in public radio and shares are expensive, <laughs> and um, uh, which is why we hold fund drives so that Mike could be paid and it's like, you know, who makes the decision? Because nobody, quote, owns that loan. It's in a big trust. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of people own shares in a bunch of different loans. Mm-hmm. So does that, is there anything, is there any situation that you look at like that where you're just like, this is not going to work? I just, I've, I have enough experience to know that if the lineup is like this, it is not going to happen. No, it's it's really not that way. And, and, and even though there's, might be a million different, asset-backed portfolios, um, they all follow the same guidelines. So as long as you've got, as long as you understand the guidelines and as, as long as you're following the guidelines, the, of course, the mortgage lenders, they've got 
lay overlays 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 um but but as far as that goes it, if you get the deal done it's it's usually because of who has insured the loan mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay so other things um many times it turns out that the mortgage that you think you're dealing with is not the only yes not the only individual or person who needs to be satisfied um and there's there's particularly one uh thing that folks need to look at because unless you live in wayne county michigan they cannot be shorted and that is property taxes um i've i've not been able to short property taxes (laughs) in any of the states that i have negotiated short sales in actually apparently in the county where detroit is there are so many unpaid property taxes that they that the, that the county will in fact short the property taxes. But other than that, in the whole rest of the United States, whatever you're offering, you got to figure that that's kind of either the bank's going to have to pay the property taxes, which they're not going to be super anxious to do because right. they're already getting less money, or you got to add that into your offer. You got to say, I want to pay one ten, but the taxes are ten. So what I want to offer the bank is a hundred, and tell them I will pay the taxes. Right. Right. Okay. Um, all right. So let's talk about uh, timeframes because uh, folks who are in foreclosure are famous for having their heads buried in the sand for yes. a long, long time. And I'm not, you know, I, I'm not laughing because I, I, I don't have any sympathy for these folks because I absolutely do. I know people, you know, get into bad situations that are not their fault and it's very emotional oftentimes to lose your home. But man, they will you will you will start in in, in Ohio it takes about 13 months to do a, a foreclosure and so you get noticed 13 months out that somebody's somebody's out there and they can't make their payments right and you start sending them letters and when do they call you they call you four days before the sheriff sale correct is supposed to happen because they've just realized this is really happening at what point is it just too late um, there are two two lenders out there that we have run across. Uh, if it's 40 days or closer to the sheriff's sale, they absolutely won't even open a file for them. Okay. So um, typically um, a, 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 an average, a, a regular short sale, single mortgage, no, no judgment liens, no extra mortgages, no mortgage money bailouts from FHA, just a regular plain Jane homeowner. Um, takes typically about three to five months from the time we do the paperwork to the time we sit down to the closing table. Which might be a good thing to say to your pre-foreclosure sellers if you're marketing to them. It might be good It might yes. be good to say, there is, I want to help you, but there is a point at which this will be too late. Yes. So even, yeah. even if you think... Well, and, and I just had one. He, I spoke with him in July. Uh, I'm busy. Uh, I'll get around to getting you the paperwork, and he did in um, November, and it went to sale at the end of December, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't even open a file. Too late. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got a question here from Paul in Cincinnati. He says, "So if I do need a third party to negotiate a short sale on a property I want to buy, how is the intermediary paid, and on what do they base their compensation?" It depends. Um. Either the the bank can pay them or the buyer can pay them under federal trade guidelines. Uh, the seller is not allowed to pay anything for the short sale. Interesting. Interesting because, you know, a lot of folks think that the seller is the one person not getting any value out of this. The seller is actually 
in some cases, the person getting the most value very much so. out of this, and yet they very can't much pay so. you. That's that's an interesting example of consumer protection gone wrong. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, and 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 actually, let's you know, for folks who might not be super familiar with how these things work, let's explain that. There's there's um, Let's say I have a house. It's it's uh, I borrowed I borrowed two hundred thousand dollars, okay, and now it's worth one fifty, okay, because I just bought it exactly the wrong time. I got an option arm, and right. it's been adding money th- this whole time, and I just cannot continue to make the payments. If I sell for one fifty in a short sale, there could be like a really bad thing that happens to me if someone like you isn't involved who knows how to make it go away. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, I've I've had people come back to me. Well, I've had I've had all kinds of people come back to me that I didn't help, but somebody else helped them back in the back in the uh, you know heyday. And uh, there's a lot of people that I know that got to sell their house through a short sale, but ended up paying a deficiency note or ended up getting a 1099 tax consequence or whatever the case is. So it it, it really truly does need to be negotiated to to the seller's benefits to get rid of everything the the deficiency judgment that the difference between i mean a lot of people think well if the bank takes my house then i don't owe them anything anymore no no uh-uh and in fact they can charge you and go after you for every dime between the difference of what they have in it and that's not just the loan that yes. can also be some depending on what state you live in that could be court costs foreclosure fees, costs delinquencies delinquency attorney fees all right of right yep. and they can they can not just just charge you for it but they can actually start garnishing your wages put it against other properties yes so i find it very interesting that a seller who like I don't think I've ever made $50,000 on a short sale I bought, fixed, and sold, but I bet there are sellers who have, who have made $50,000. You all don't see me making the air quotes. Made $50,000 by not getting that deficiency judgment. Oh, my gosh. And that, I can pay you and they can't. That's so interesting. That's, yeah, 50000 is probably uh, on the light side. There's there's a lot of, if you've got multiple mortgages, homeowners association fees, back taxes, I mean, you know, we we've <laughs> saved a lot of people a lot of money over saved the years. Twenty five yes. million. <laughs> Twenty five million. All righty. Let's uh let's take one last break. When we come back we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about realities of the short sale market in twenty seventeen and also um, take any questions that you might have at the last minute, just send them to us by going to realliferealestate.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Kristen Caladine from ExitMyForeclosure.com is my guest today. Clearly, we are going to have to do a whole nother show because <laughs> there was so much... Well, I mean, there's a lot I think of people... we scratched the surface. We did. There's a lot of there's a lot of people with a lot of questions, and I get that because this is one of those kind of marquee topics that if you if you say we're talking about short sales at our REA meeting, then everybody in the world wants to show up. So I'm going to say we're talking about short sales at our next REA meeting. Everybody show up. Everybody everybody should show up. You you should uh, get information about that meeting, which is on the 19th of January. So we're giving you over a week's worth of notice this time. 
at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's CincinnatiREIA.com. There's also a couple of really great uh, early meetings um, beforehand. I know um, Scott Ellsworth's going to talk about 1031 exchanges, which are making a big comeback now that people actually have yes. some profit in their property. Yes. And I'm going to be talking to the beginners about how to choose the right exit strategy, which is like the biggest decision you make. Yes. You can decide whether you want to use short sales after you decide what you're going to do with them. Right. After you've bought them. Right. <laughs> so... Um, let's go back to uh, your list of things that, that, that you said, like, this is really, really, really what I want uh, folks to know about short sales. Um, does it make a difference whether the property is occupied or vacant? To do the short sale? No. Um, um, lenders will do short sales whether the properties are occupied or, or vacant. Uh, the benefit for the sellers is to stay they're, they're allowed to stay in the home. The lenders want them to stay in the loan in the home um, until the until the sale occurs. But no, it's a sale. You've mm-hmm. you've got to go. You have to leave. <laughs> um, and, and and depending there again, uh, this is part of that gracious government bailout. Uh, the sellers could ha- have incentives to stay in the house could receive incentive monies to stay in the house up until the day of the sale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, no, it does not make a difference uh, as far as whether it's occupied or, or vacant. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I know a lot of wholesalers are uh, very unhappy about <laughs> is that as time has passed, it has gotten more and more and more and more and more and more the case that accepted short sale contracts are not assignable. Yes. That's a Fannie Freddie guideline. Um, Fannie Freddie says, and they they put it in as an actual deed restriction, um, no different than if, if you bought a Fannie Freddie, you know, REO, uh, bank-owned foreclosure, and, and bought it through Homesteps or HomePath, uh, you're going to have a deed restriction. Same way with the short sales, you're going to have a deed restriction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's not that it's not that they cannot be resold at some point, but you had better have a plan. Correct. If you're, if you're going in as a as a as a wholesaler, Let, let's just say this because we don't have time in the next five minutes to tell the potential wholesalers right. everything that they need Come to next do Thursday. <laughs> That's right. You need to you need to have a plan because uh, if you put your name on the bottom of that contract, yeah, I know it's just a board contract. There's no non-assignability clause on in it. That comes with the acceptance letter, correct? And then, and then you're gonna you're gonna email me, and you're gonna be like, "Oh, how do I get my name off this contract to get my buyers on?" And my answer is going to be, "You don't." You I don't. hope you can close. Yes, <laughs> because yes. that is your big uh, choice at that point. So, tell us about other requirements. If I if I'm going to make an offer on a short sale, am I am I going to need to use a particular contract? Am I going to need to have earnest money, proof of funds? All of the above. It it is it is no different than a standard purchase contract. So, so you can use a board contract, a broker contract, whatever the case may be. Uh, the lender will require proof of funds, pre qualification letter, um, um, earnest money. All of the same things that you would use in a in a regular purchase. You'll you'll need that if you're purchasing it in your own name. You don't need anything other than the proof proof of funds or prequal. If you're purchasing it in a company's name, you're gonna bring the file cabinet to the to the <laughs> to to my office because they're gonna want 
everything from your articles of incorporation to your operating agreement to membership ownerships and and they do that a lot of time and and also if you're if you're out there as an agent buying short sales or buying distressed sales uh, they will not pay commissions i'm just telling you know this all (laughs) all realtors out there if you write the contract and you are the agent, you are not going to get paid. And that's that's the bank's guidelines. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I'm actually looking at this list trying to figure out what the most important next thing is because we are not going to get through it all in this show. Um, okay. So, so let's let's sort of summarize this for our investor listeners Mm -hmm. they get a call from or have a friend who or whatever somebody who clearly needs a short sale they are interested in buying the property as an investment or you know buying it fixing it selling it whatever what is their very next step going to be call me Call me, and then what I typically do is I'll have a conference call with them and, and, and the seller because obviously the seller doesn't know anything. The banks aren't going to tell them what to do and how to do it, so I'll at least give them a, a level playing field to make a decision on. Um, um, I deal with the seller side of things, so I have to deal with them directly. I have to get all of their documentation and information, and I have to submit. The investor writes the offer. And we submit it as a completed packet. From from that point, three to five months down the road, we can sit down at the closing table or um, not. Or not. And let's and yeah, let's 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 tackle that issue. Yep. Um, what percentage of short sales are actually being accepted right now? It depends. <laughs> Are you talking on the first go around or about the fifth? <laughs> yeah, well, um, e- excellent question. And I understand it kind we, of accordions a-, a little bit too. Like, like some, like it seems like some quarters the banks are like really tight yes. with their short sales, and then all of a sudden they loosen up. Yes, yes. Well, we had uh, I think fifteen on the books to close in December, so it it is still let's get them off the books by the end of the year, and by the end of the quarter, and by the end of the month, and by the end of the day. Um. um I'm sorry. What was your question? Oh, how, uh, what percentage percentage that are being accepted? And I guess I guess a better way to put that question, because obviously if I go in and offer a dollar, it's never going to be accepted. Right. I guess a better question would be, if I really want to get a short sale accepted, what you know, where where do I need to be price wise? In a ballpark range, somewhere between fifty and eighty percent of the retail value, um, they are going to do a retail. I don't know why I don't make these rules. They're going to do a retail appraisal, generally speaking, on the first go around, unless it truly is a distressed sale. Um, and and at that point, they're going to come back with a value, and and we go back to the buyer, the investor buyer. I know you offered, you know, a hundred thousand dollars for this house, but the bank wants a hundred and fifty. Are you in <laughs> or are you out? You know, out. <laughs> um, and 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 that's what happens. Uh, but the the what happens is in those situations, if they're out, that property might very well sell on the retail market. Mm-hmm. Because, if, it's not, if it's not super rough. Exactly. Exactly. But if that buyer is willing to hang out and, and wait, wait through the process, and it might take, at that point, six to eight months, um, we've had a lot of 
a lot of sales go on on the second half. So patience. Patience, patience is, is a virtue. Key. All right. Excellent. Thank you, Kristen Callendine, for sharing some of your vast knowledge <laughs> of short sales with us this evening. Again, folks in the Cincinnati or Columbus areas can get more information about seeing Kristen live at CincinnatiRIA.com or in the Columbus area at CentralOhioRIA.com, uh, although that won't be for a few months. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.